Hello and welcome to the Creative Questers podcast. My name is Stefka. And I'm Christina. And today we have a very special episode for you guys. We did an interview with the lovely and wonderful CB Drogi, who is an author, an editor, a voice actor, and so many more things, but most importantly, a very dear friend to us. Why don't we jump straight into it? Because this is our very first episode with a guest. I'm quite excited. Christina, I think you're about as excited as I am to have the wonderful CV here. Yay! Hi, CV! Hello. Does anyone get as excited as Stefka? No. No. No one in the the universe. (laughs) That's just me. This is my... My character trait, this is the one thing that I can do better than anyone else. Excitement. Mm. (laughs) That's the kind of thing. But let's not talk about me, CB. I want to talk about you. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners? Uh, Sure. I'm CB Darogi. I'm a science fiction author and a voice actor. As an author, uh, I focus on short stories, sometimes very short stories. I've been writing flash fiction for a long time, and most of what most of my writing work that's been published has been flash fiction. So that's mostly work under fifteen hundred words. Usually, uh, I do have some longer stories out and a novel, and I'm working on a new novel. But the focus for uh, at least a few years has been on short, short stuff. Cool. As a voice actor, I focus on narration. So I work on audiobooks frequently, and mm-hmm. I have a, a podcast that I use for narration practice. More than just narration practice. That's how it started out. Oh, okay. Okay. Your podcast is quite entertaining. What is your podcast name? I'm sorry, I forgot the exact name. I just follow the it. Manowaker Studios Flash Fiction Podcast. And we're definitely going to link that in the show notes. So if anyone listening wants to check (laughs) it out, it's going to be down there for sure. Yeah, and you should. It's really cool. He Mm -hmm. goes and selects the best short stories that are submitted and and reads them in his, as you can tell, very lovely voice. Yes. Thank you. I was wondering, one of my questions is, are you one of those people that always knew that you wanted to write? That's a great question. (laughs) Yes, I... Well, I always knew I wanted to tell stories and I was telling those stories as a writer and as a voice actor from a very young age. So I started writing stories in grade school. Um, Maybe I was telling stories before that, but that's the earliest evidence (laughs) that we have (laughs) of written stories from me. Do you still have some? I have some stories. We want to read them. Oh, my God. (laughs) On the bookshelf behind me, there's a little book uh, that you guys can see, but your listeners won't be able to see. It is called The Mystery at Echo Manor. Oh, my God. I love it. A handbound book with a orange cat on the cover. Mm. Yes. Um, Instant love. (laughs) It's maybe 30 handwritten pages handwritten in my mom's type because mm-hmm. my dysgraphia makes it difficult for anyone to read anything that I write. And that was also true when I was when I was a child, although more so, I'm sure. This was a book. I called it a book. 
at the time. It's really more of a short story, but it's divided into eight chapters. So I thought of it as a book. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, a book about a couple of kids investigating some weird happenings at a house on their street. It was prompted by a teacher at the time who had given us a writing prompt. Uh, and I turned it into a story that I liked so much that I, I wanted to make it into a book. And my mom helped me make that little book. And how do you feel when you read it today? I actually haven't read the text of this story in a long time. It sits on my shelf and it's a neat little like novelty conversation piece, but it's in my mom's cursive mm -hmm. and uh, I haven't bothered to decode it <laughs> oh. in <quite> some years. <laughs> I don't know that I can even like write cursive anymore at this point, oh, to be honest. I, I never could. I'm, I missed those days in school. I had a, a typewriter in the back of the classroom to help with my dysgraphia. So I'm sure mm -hmm. you can imagine that made me quite popular with the other kids. <laughs> it also meant that I got to skip all the cursive writing <gasps> lessons uh, because oh. I was allowed to type all of my assignments, which didn't make sense with cursive. That was my... Uh, disability accommodation. Fair. There are earlier stories. I know that I wrote several Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle fan fiction stories. Oh my God, <laughs> This is great. Just knowing about them makes my heart so glad. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I remember most, I had written an alternative origin story for the Shredder after reading the Ninja Turtle comics. <laughs> I relate to all of that because I feel like I write way too much fan fiction just because I'm not happy with the canon. And I'm just like, nah, this did never happen. This character never died. Shut up. Yeah, <laughs> I relate to that. That's so cool. And also, CB, as preparation for this podcast, I went back through your author bio. What's wrong with Time Traveling Wizards? Because you say in your author bio that you love wizards and time travel, but you have an irrational distaste for time-traveling wizards. What's wrong with them? <laughs> Tell me. Um, the sort of point of that line is my desire to keep my fantasy and my science fiction sort of separated. <laughs> okay. I think of magic systems and tech systems very uh, segregated. And... Mm -hmm stories that contain characters that are sort of doing magic with technology or doing technology with magic kind of bother me. Okay. But also any fantasy stories that contain time travel often have some of the worst elements of time travel in them. And I say this as a person who my only published novel is a time travel story. <laughs> um, wow. That time travel stories are often really ridiculous. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I wrote the story that I wrote, Zeta Disconnect, as a novel is essentially a almost academic response to all of the tropes of time travel fiction that I don't like. Okay. Because I love time travel as a concept mm -hmm. and I really like time travel stories. And some of my favorite stories throughout my life have been time travel stories, but all of them always have something that bothers me. Okay. Right? <laughs> Some aspect of it that I'm like, this doesn't work <laughs> and I wanted it to work. Mm -hmm. And so I set out to write 
a time travel story where everything works, even if it's not as good of a story as it could have been as a result. <laughs> it all actually fits together as yeah. a time travel narrative that, that really works logically. Fair. <laughs> I have fans who really appreciate that, right? That that yeah. this is this is something that, you know, all the pieces totally fit together. It was a lot of work. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of back and forth with the storytelling. And actually the novel has a lot of pieces cut out of it that were in the original plan that didn't make it into the final book. But it does, as it stands, all fit together with no like logical inconsistencies or or paradoxes. Uh, of course, I say that now and, you know, I'm sure somebody can find something. <laughs> this is almost like a challenge. Yeah, now, now I'm challenging. Ah. People, but the, that was the idea. What was the name of that book so that our yeah. listeners can go and dig out those inconsistencies? <laughs> and it's called Zeta Disconnect. Right. And it's available on Amazon and any place where you can find books. Yeah. Under mm-hmm. your name. Under my name. And it's also going to be in the show notes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This will be in the show notes. <laughs> so you mentioned that science fiction and fantasy are two separate worlds for you. Mm-hmm. And two separate genres that I've I've noticed some people recently have said that they are writing on writing a sci-fi fantasy. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about genre writing, genres in general, and or the bleed over between science fiction and fantasy? I think the blending of genres is I mean, I don't think it's sort of like unacceptable as part of the art. Of course, there are great things that can be done in blending genres. When I was talking about the, you know, distaste for time traveling wizards, this is, you know, specifically (laughs) looking at like classic fantasy tropes Mm -hmm. combined directly with classic science fiction tropes, which has been attempted enough times (laughs) to know that I don't like it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But generally the, the blending of disparate parts of speculative fiction can be done very well, right? I mean, if nothing else, Star Wars is our you know biggest example of pulling science fiction tropes into a fantasy story and giving mm-hmm. us something that at least the mainstream viewer is really hot on. And I like parts of it also, uh, although much of it does kind of cross that line for me, right? I'm I'm more into you know Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. Star Trek both of them more than I am into Star Wars because of this bleeding effect, right? But this is personal, right? This is just my my personal taste. I'm not trying to say that these things are bad. That's why I even say in that line that Stefkin's quoted from me <laughs> that, that this is an irrational distaste, right? Like this is my own <laughs> personal failing that I can't put these together. And I've, and I've even tried to put them together in my own stories and tried to find a way to sort of respond to this taste by like, okay, how can these things be blended well? And can I try to do it? And I don't even like the stories that I write that, right? So, you know. (laughs) Did you read one more than the other when you were a kid? I read a lot more fantasy than I read science fiction. And the science fiction started sort of came into my library later in life. And then that's also sort of what happened with my writing. I was writing a lot more fantasy when I was younger. As I grew as an author, for some reason, my focus also shifted more towards science fiction. 
as I gain more education and knowledge of science and things like that, my desire to include real scientific principles and futurism in my work was more appealing to me than including, you know, uh, fantasy, which okay. not to say that there's something like less educated about fantasy, like it's a lower brow fiction. You can do a lot of things with fantasy that you can't do with science fiction. But for me, it was sort of a, a developmental step, right? Mm -hmm. Where mm -hmm. I, I sort of pushed off of fantasy writing into science fiction writing. I do still write some fantasy though. I have kind of a tendency to to rewrite classic legends and fairy tales and try to put them into a new a new viewpoint. And some of those I do as science fiction stories, uh, but some of them are also straight up fantasy stories. Like your upcoming anthology. The title is still in flux. Okay. <laughs> By the time your your podcast is out or or readers are looking for the book, it might be under a different title. Right now, I am leaning towards the encoding of Briar Rose, mm -hmm. which is definitely a crossover between fantasy and sci-fi and fairy tales. Yeah, because it's a, it's a retelling of the fairy tale of Briar Rose as a uh, science fiction story but in conjunction with a bunch of other authors. So I am written... so excited about that. <laughs> I am now honestly, you see me, I've said this before. I am a fantasy mm -hmm. kind of girl. Every mm -hmm. time sci-fi is like meh not usually for me, but CV, you have brought all these cool sci-fi snippets to the one other word project and mm -hmm. in general and with the podcast too that I follow as well. And now you know what? I actually have started writing some very bad pieces, but started <laughs> writing sci-fi stuff. And I've never seen myself as a sci-fi kind of person. So I'm inspired by UCB. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So I've written a framing narrative of a retelling of the first half of the Briar Rose story. If you're not familiar with Briar Rose or your listeners aren't, the First half of the story, this is the story of Sleeping Beauty. The baby of the king and the queen is being celebrated. They have invited the 12 wise women from around the kingdom to their table to celebrate. But in the original story, the reason they don't invite the 13th wise woman is because they don't have enough plates. Ooh. They only have 12 golden plates, but there's a 13th wise woman who feels snubbed by this. So each of the wise women comes and, and delivers a gift upon Briar Rose, upon the baby. And these are gifts. Some of them are, are material and some of them are magical and some of them are sort of ethereal or personality based. And then the 13th comes and casts a curse on the baby and the other 12 have to work together to mitigate the curse and make it so that instead of dying, she only sleeps. And then that's that leads into the rest of the story. For this story, instead, Briar Rose is the code name for an AI who is going to be running the space station colony after the current administrator retires. And he's invited 12 AI engineers to come encode the AI with the personality traits that she's going to need to run the colony. So I've got that story that goes through the whole book, but as each AI expert comes up and does her coding, she's also telling a story. And so I have 13 other authors who have contributed stories to the book that are the stories that the AI experts are telling while they're doing the coding. And so then that squeezes the book together with the framing narrative. 
That sounds amazing. I'm like, I've been making faces at the camera because I didn't want to interrupt. (laughs) Oh my God, I want to read this so bad. I actually read it and I really, really enjoyed it. There were some really amazing (laughs) stories in there. But Stefka, I was going to ask you, since you're German, Yeah. in one of our groups, we had a a meme that was shared of this person that was being set afire and these cats are going, oh no. Ah, And it says, when you have a fairy tale ending, but it's the German version. And so (laughs) I wondered if you know this story of Sleeping Beauty and um, I do. If it, what is the German ending of this story? Do we want to know? Is it PG enough to share? (laughs) Not sure. Not sure. So honestly, there is the Disney version, right? And I grew up in the 90s. We had the Disney versions as well, and they kind of went on par with the grim original versions. So it's kind of weird in my head because I tend to mix up things. And then when people look at me weirdly, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember now that's the Grimm's version, isn't it? So I vividly remember that in the original Grimm's tale, well, she wakes up because she gives birth to twins. Oh, so you kind of like there's a lot of stuff happening in between that's why she wakes up in the original Uh, version so yes oh god yes (laughs) yes make of that what you will (laughs) but there's so much to that there's just okay enough said yeah um moving on (laughs) moving on to me back to you hi i mean i have i have the direct translation on the shelf behind me on my reference shelf, I have a book that's full of as direct as possible English translations of the Grimm nice. tales of the of the of their hundred and one tales book that they published so many years ago. I can read to you if you'd like the last few paragraphs. Sure. These were very condensed tales when they told them, and then later authors had to expand them back out again in order to make them more interesting. He went on farther, and in the great hall he saw the whole of the court lying asleep, and up by the throne lay the king and queen. Then he went on still farther, and all was so quiet that a breath could be heard. And at last he came to the tower and opened the door into the little room where Briar Rose was sleeping. There she lay, so beautiful that he could not turn his eyes away, and he stooped down and gave her a kiss. But as soon as he kissed her, Briar Rose opened her eyes and awoke and looked at him quite sweetly. Then they went down together, and the king awoke, and the queen and the whole court, and looked at each other in great astonishment. And the horses in the courtyard stood up and shook themselves. The hounds jumped up and wagged their tails. The pigeons on the roof pulled out their heads from under their wings, looked round, and flew into the open country. The flies on the wall crept again. The fire in the kitchen burned up and flickered and cooked the meat. The roast began to turn and frizzle again. And the cook gave the boy such a box on the ear that he screamed, and the maid plucked the fowl ready for the spit. (laughs) And then the marriage of the king's son with Briar Rose was celebrated with all splendor, and they lived contented to the end of their days. That one doesn't have the birth of the twins in it. I'm glad for it. Other versions of Briar Rose that they told, this was the one that I was referencing directly for, Mm -hmm. um, for for the story that I was working on. 
I feel like there's a ton of different versions. And there's also things like the fact that in the original Snow White um, fairy tale, they make the stepmother dance in like um, some type of shoes. I don't even remember. And they put hot coals in it and she has to dance mm -hmm. until she dies. Some of them have quite these cruel elements in there that are very yeah. black and white. But then you have to remember they are written for children and children do tend to think in black and white and they don't see, mm -hmm. they don't quite understand death as a concept the way we do as adults but i like that version better Steve. let's just stay with yeah. that and not talk about anything else this one's actually pretty nice at the ending of the stories in the 101 fairy tales that they they published years back this is actually one of the nicer endings <laughs> yeah <laughs> CB, I want to get back to you and I want to ask you sure. the one question that to me as a writer is always at the center of my mind whenever I try to row big projects together and, and just finish stories and actually get them onto paper and into a book. As someone who has a lot of experience with that, CB, how do you even manage to get to that book-shaped <laughs> end result? I'm not quite sure how to answer that. There's there's a lot of different paths into to constructing a book, but many of my stories, most of my publications are published by other people. These are things that other magazines and anthologies have purchased from me and put into their books, right? And so this is this is most of the places that people will probably encounter my work is in these other locations, right? In fact, the the widest distribution of my work to date is in Nature Magazine. My own books have just come from initiative, I guess. You know, I push myself to do the design and stick the things together and put it in front of people. Whether or not I'm good at it <laughs> is another question, but... Well, I think it's a little more than that. But, you know, <laughs> it works for you. That's, that's the thrust. And as far as whether it's good or not, I think the fact that you have been published widely in other locations would speak to that fact. Could you tell us a little bit about your, I know that you've got quite a submission process mm -hmm. and how you got into that, why you feel it's worth it to get your word out there into the world. What does your submission process look like? And do you have any tips for our listeners about how to get their words out there in the world? My submission process, I go every three months or so, I go through all of my stories and I try to match them up with venues that might want to publish them. So I have uh, a couple different places online where I search for different venues. I have a list that I've compiled over the years of places that I like to send to over and over again, and places that I search for anthologies and things like that. If you haven't found it already, Duotrope is very popular. Submission Grinder is similar to Duotrope. I actually like Submission Grinder a little bit better. It has search features that I, I just like slightly better. And I don't know, it has a a bit of an attitude to it that that strikes me as more indie and interesting than Duotrope. I'm probably assigning properties that they don't have, but that's just my <laughs> my my personal feel. I just feel better on submission grinder when I'm when I'm browsing around than I do on Duotrope. But both of them work wonderfully for for most authors to just go in you say you know like what genre do you want how much do you want to be paid and almost everybody who's looking for work will put their calls on both of those services right you know when i'm doing a call for one of my anthologies or like for briar rose 
that was on both of those places. Those are good resources, but then also I do meticulous tracking on my own. I have a spreadsheet software that's specifically designed for tracking fiction submissions. Also, both Submission Grinder and Duotrope have their own built-in online mm -hmm. tracking services. I don't use those just for data security reasons. I like to have the data on my own computer and in my own clouds yeah. instead of on somebody else's website. But either way works. A lot of people do it uh, just online and keep all their submissions in one place on a website. As long as you're keeping track, you know who you've given what stories to and how long they've been there and which ones they've seen already in the past and things like that, then you, you've got it down, right? Uh, and then it just is constantly sending the stories out and making sure that either every magazine is always looking at something or that every story is always being looked at by someone, right? Whichever direction yeah. you want to approach that from. Do you have a particular goal to get X number of submissions a month, a week, whatever? So I approach it more from the direction of trying to make sure that every venue that uh, I'm interested in is looking at at least one of my stories per quarter. So every 90 days or so, I go to my list of markets that I, I like to sell to or that I want to sell to, and I try to find a story from my list of unpublished stories that might connect with that market. And sometimes I don't get all of them because I might not have enough of the right types of stories to send one story to everybody, but I try. Now, part of it, it helps that I have dozens of unpublished stories that I can send out and a backlist of more dozens of already published stories that can be sent to venues that accept second publishings. So I have lots of stories that I can match to those markets. So that's why I approach it from that direction. Someone who has fewer stories might want to approach it from the other direction and just like make sure that each story is being seen by someone every 90 days. That 90 day window becomes important because that's kind of like the industry standard for the amount of time that it takes maximum to look at stories is about 90 days. If you've had a story with a venue for, for three months or so, then you can usually assume that they don't want it if they haven't written back to you. So then I go in every 90 days, I count as rejected all the stories that I haven't heard from yet, and I try to send something new to all those markets. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I'm just always churning through and grinding through the submission process to make sure that things are out there, right? And if, if they're not out there, then nobody's going to buy them, right? So yeah, uh, it's just about it's just about sending them away and being careful with the Submission guidelines. Yeah, definitely important. You know, a lot of these venues get so many stories that they're just kind of looking for excuses to reject them. So yeah, it's important to stick to the guidelines as well. Yeah. Although as an editor, I try to be more flexible with the receipt of stories, right? If, if people send me stuff, as long as I can read, as long as I can find a way to read it, uh, <laughs> I'll read it. Then you're kinder than most. <laughs> That's cool. And while we're talking about submission habits and I guess also acceptance habits, because you mm -hmm. have the perspective from both sides, it's nice to have that story pull and be able to send stories out, but it makes me jealous because I'm not quite there yet. So mm -hmm. CB, my next question would be, what kind of writing habit do you have to build up this pool of stories? Do you write like... Every other day, do you get in five pages every morning before coffee? What's your writing habit? 
No, I unfortunately don't have any quick habit descriptions like that. My my process <laughs> is is fairly fluid and is changing all the time with what kinds of other projects I have going on, whether or not I currently mm-hmm. have a narration client. Uh, if I'm not narrating an audiobook, I end up writing more. Or if I'm working on an anthology or something, uh, I end up writing less. Yeah. So it changes quite a bit for me, but I also don't have a lot of trouble. I'm a sort of intrinsically motivated person when it comes mm-hmm. to writing. I just, I like to put down my stories. And my. this is this is an activity that I seek to find time for. So I don't really need to force myself to write like within a certain box. You know, like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of authors out there who have these things, like you said, that's like, you know, I have to sit down and write at least 500 words before my second coffee every day or something like that. And I've never really had to do that for myself. If I have open time, I'm usually using it to work on stories. Yeah. If I'm not actually sitting in front of my keyboard writing a story, I'm thinking about a story Mm. or I'm researching a story or... Uh, someone else's stories are going through my head in such a way that I'm like replaying them and recombining mm-hmm. elements and trying to figure out how they work so that I can write stories in a similar vein myself. Right. So I'm cool. my my brain kind of runs on stories uh, naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it pushes out a lot of other things, which can be very inconvenient sometimes. <laughs> Ask your wife. <laughs> For instance, I am very bad with numbers. Yes. And then a lot of my hobbies have to do with this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, construction and destruction. And then also my professional life, you know, of course, as a writer, but then also as a, as a voice actor, the reason I focus mm-hmm. on narration is because the ability to, you know, deconstruct and reconstruct the stories as I see them on the page helps me perform the stories in such a way that can be engaging for the audiences. And yeah. as a teacher, I was a, I didn't mention this earlier, but I was a, a collegiate English instructor for, for 10 years. And I focused on teaching creative writing and literature analysis. So again, it was constructing stories and deconstructing stories. And this was really exciting to me to share these things with mm-hmm. students. So this is just kind of how my internal pieces fit together anyway. So unfortunately, yeah. I don't have like a, a process to share. You're just a storytelling machine. That's (laughs) the way it is. (laughs) I do find if I'm in a rut, I can give myself a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I, but that's more if I find myself like, oh, I'm writing too much of the same thing Mm -hmm. or the project I'm currently working on is starting to get stale for me. I can assign myself something new to do. But again, that's, that's still intrinsic. For instance, the recycled comics project came out of something like that, where I was, Mm -hmm. I was feeling in in a bit of a rut that I'd been kind of writing the same kind of stories over and over again and wasn't uh, wasn't getting something new out. So I came up with this challenge for myself that I would take old comic books and erase all the dialogue from them. I just used, you know, Photoshop to erase the dialogue and rewrite the dialogue to tell a new story using the same art in the same sequence. That's so cool. Originally, I was going to do 12 issues but it by the time I did eight I started to kind of feel like I was done with that project Mm -hmm. Um, so it ended up only at eight yeah only at eight but then those eight books tell a new story all in the same universe even though the original books were not from the same story and I also ended up writing a bunch of captions uh, additional paragraphs of information 
that are told from the point of view of a future historian who's looking back on these sci-fi stories from the far future and explaining the things that are going on in the comics to... Oh, that's so fun. That's so clever. The readers, which he assumes are also in the far future. This was something that I did because I was in a rut and I needed to get out of it, right? Like, because I... Basically, you were bored. (laughs) (laughs) I was. (laughs) And that's something that we've talked about in our podcast before, Mm. is when you get stuck in a rut and you can't figure out what you want to write, Mm -hmm. one of the things that seems counterintuitive is to actually make more restrictions. Mm -hmm. And so by having these restrictions of when you're writing for these, these characters in comic books, you've got these images lined up for you and you've got to make your story based on this framework that it's in. Do you find that those restrictions can be inspirational for you? Absolutely. It also taught me a lot about economy of language. Mm -hmm. So I was taking old comics that are out in the public domain either because they've been abandoned or because the company that originally published them and held the rights to them has gone bankrupt. And, you know, everything is just in all the, all the comics that I was looking at and and taking from were from the public domain. And these older comics had often very little dialogue. A lot of the story was assumed and told with very short snippets. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, trying to be verbose in that environment was detrimental to telling the stories. So I had to try to fit what I wanted to say into to smaller and smaller spaces for these characters. So less is more. In the case of that project, it was, yes. <laughs> In some, some genres and situations, more is more. You know, if you're writing an epic fantasy novel, then you want to hit that 800 page mark or whatever the audiences are looking Ooh. for these days. And you got to get there by filling out the book, right? And then yeah. and then that's what's important. But And one of the reasons that a lot of the work that I've been doing lately is very short is that that's, that's been appealing to me as a challenge lately, mm-hmm. right? As a way to get myself to write what I feel like are personally more interesting things is to try to squeeze those things into smaller spaces which is one of the reasons that the 100 Word Project that we worked on together was so appealing to Mm -hmm. me. Often I'll start with 250 to 400 word Mm -hmm. pieces, little vignettes or dialogue snippets or moments within a larger story. And I'll spend all my time, you know, that's the easy part. (laughs) And then trimming that down (laughs) to 100 words becomes the hard part. And this was the same thing that I had to do with Recycled Comics, where I knew... Mm -hmm where I wanted the story to go. As soon as I saw the art, I was like, oh, this, this would be a good story. <laughs> and then I had to figure out how to fit that story into those tiny spaces that were afforded to me by the original artist. So thank you for mentioning that 100 word project again. Just want to have a little shout out. Thank you so <laughs> much for helping us get that anthology yes! out in the world. Absolutely. We had so much fun with this project and I did some proofreading on this and went through and reread all these stories as they were laid out in the book. And I just found it so inspiring and so fun to see how much you can do in such a small space with just 100 words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really um, interesting challenge to take yeah. and tell a whole story or at least create a really beautiful horrible (laughs) image in 100 (laughs) words 
And I loved yeah. how different they were as well. We had, I don't remember how many different authors we had involved in this project, but do you remember off the top of your head? 20 something? Um, Low 20s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it was just such a fun project. There were so many amazing stories that came out of this project. Thank you so much. We'll have a link yes. to this in our show notes of where you can mm -hmm. buy this book. I was going to ask you, you've mentioned being a voice actor a few times. Yes. How does the process of narrating someone else's story differ from your own writing? And do you ever find it challenging to bring another author's work to life through your voice? I mean, there are certainly some challenges, but it's kind of the difference, if it makes sense, between art and craft, right? Mm -hmm. So writing my own stories is, is an art where I'm creating something from nothing, right? The way... Uh, any artist, you know, a painter or sculptor or or anything like that. But narration is more like a craft mm -hmm. where rather than creating something from nothing, I'm creating a product from an existing template to like make an analogy to to other like physical art forms. Writing is more like sculpting and narrating is more like basket weaving. <laughs> right. where, I, where I'm taking like I already know what the shape is going to be and I just have to put it in the shape mm -hmm. so in that way there's a lot less creative energy that mm -hmm. goes into narration because I sort of already know where I'm going and I already have sort of a track to run on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now that doesn't mean I'm not making any creative decisions while I'm narrating of course I need to choose character voices. Uh, I need to choose like which scenes have which cadence and things like that. But this is something that comes very naturally to me. And one of the things that makes me valuable as, as a narrator, I can usually successfully narrate a piece on my first reading of it. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go mm -hmm. through and like practice or even read the work in advance. I can read it for the very first time in front of a microphone. And as I'm reading it, I can make my performance decisions and uh, not have to go back and, and redo a whole bunch. I would like to say something about your analogy of writing being like sculpting. I like to use that same analogy, but actually, yeah, to say that, that writing is, is actually like putting the clay on the wheel and making mm -hmm. the sculpture. And since I'm an editor... I like to say mm -hmm. that the the fine sculpting is in the editing part. And I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying with, with a narration is you get to take an existing story and bring it to life in a different way. Right. It accesses a different part of creativity. And I love, I almost love that more for, for mm -hmm. me personally than writing because all the hard work's been done <laughs> <laughs> and I can just go and say, oh, but what if you uh. did this? Mm -hmm. See, and that's the fun bit because Christina, this is again one of these moments where we're on the complete opposite end of the scale. Mm -hmm. I hate the editing. I hate having to go through and look for commas that I'm missing in odd places or to like have to change words or to remove all the littles I tend to put in my story. I hate it. Well, I'm talking about somebody else's stories. <laughs> but still hate it more. Like if it's my stories, I can at least like curse myself in my head while I do it. But <laughs> someone else, I, I can still do that but i guess i would i don't know no it's it's not for me it's just, i like the story crafting so 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to backtrack a little bit, CV. And and I'm backtracking way back to the Briar Rose conversation and that anthology and the whole topic about um, AIs and also the idea of running on tracks. Have you tried out to use ChatGPT to craft stories and AIs? And, and if not, or if yes, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. about all of that? Because this feels like the elephant in the room these days. Yeah, that's a pretty big question. Mm-hmm. To, to mm-hmm. answer the easy part, I have not tried okay. <laughs> to use any of the AI text generators to generate any parts of any of my stories. Mm-hmm. I have used the art generators Ooh. to generate art. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, I was using, and, and I feel like I need to specify this because I know there's I have a lot of artist friends and they are complaining a lot about these art generators mm-hmm. the same way my art, my author friends are complaining about the text generators, yeah. that it's taking away their business. Uh, I want to clarify, I wasn't, I wasn't hiring anyone for this job before. <laughs> so I'm not, I didn't stop hiring people in order to do Hey, I didn't take away the jobs. No, it didn't take away anyone's job, but I was basically, I would use stock, uh, stock images for the art for my podcast. So the podcast doesn't have a super big budget, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It certainly doesn't have an extra budget for art that only a few people are even going to see because who actually opens up the podcast listener and looks at the art for each episode? Not me. me. So I would, you know, I wanted art in there, but I would mostly just like search the stock, the free stock image sites for something that was vaguely related to the story. And then I would, I would stick it in there. But Mm -hmm. now I've been using uh, MidJourney. Mm-hmm. to generate so if you if you look at the art from the last couple of months of the podcast almost all of those are generated by midjourney instead and they're much closer to how i would like the art to look for each of those episodes right because i can i can sort of talk to the art generator and get it to look just the way i want it to look and have the elements yeah. that i want it to have without worrying about stepping on other people's copyrights and things like that. Now I'm sure there are going to be artists in your audience who are like, but you're stepping on my copyright because the mm. journey is stealing from me. And I yeah. don't really know a lot about that. Right. Yeah. Like I'm not an AI expert who knows like how any of that works. I'm just, you know, using the the tool that, that I found. Yeah. And I'm leaving it up to, to other people to sort of regulate it and figure that out. Mm-hmm. I haven't messed with, the chat GPT or any of those, the text ones, honestly, I'm, I'm interested, but I just haven't had a need for it. Right. Like I have mm-hmm. so many words in my head already that I haven't yeah. really found a, a use case that I'm interested in. Yeah. Although I have recently been thinking, cause people have been telling me for years that I need more social media presence. And mm-hmm. I just, I just don't care. Right? <laughs> I, I can't put it any more delicately than that. Like, I just don't care, but I should care. I'm not really a commercial artist. I don't really think about my art when I'm creating it in terms of like, how much can I sell this for and who's going to pay me for it? I I make it and then I worry about selling it later. And I don't, <laughs> and I still don't really worry about it that much. Right. When I'm, when I'm submitting stories and trying to get them into magazines, magazines and things, this is more me trying to get more people to read it than it is me trying to make money off of it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. As opposed to my 
narration job, which is, you know, I'm trying to get people to pay me to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, that's that, you know, that's the business and, and writing is the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have heard that some people use chat GPT or something like this to create their social media presence. Yeah. And I've just started dabbling in that realm. I also, from my own experience with chat GPT, I have found it really helpful for really kind of mundane tasks Mm -hmm. or like I was trying to write an email to tell someone I couldn't do something (laughs) that I, I felt obligated to do, but I didn't want to do it. And so I put, I put Mm -hmm. in the reasons I didn't want to do it. And I told chat (laughs) GPT to come up with an excuse. A nice email that says say this in a nice way. (laughs) And then I was like, make that more casual, please. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was something I could start with out of curiosity. I have an essay that I've been working on for a really long time that I thought was really nice. And then I sent it out for some feedback. And unfortunately, my readers didn't say, yes, it's amazing. Send it out the way it is. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, I really love it. But there were a lot of buts. Mm-hmm. And and this part wasn't clear. And there needs to be more connection between these things, you know, things like this. And I thought, well, let's see what ChatGPT thinks. And I put my essay into ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. And I'll be damned if it didn't say the same things that my audience said. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Part of me was really, I was really annoyed because I just wanted to tell me that it was good. And then I was like, fine, what would you do? How would you write it? <laughs> it gave me something <laughs> and it was absolute crap. Which <laughs> I couldn't decide whether I should be happy or sad because on the one hand, okay, it can't replace mm-hmm. me. On the other hand, my essay is still not edited. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be good for rote tasks. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. This is the thing, you know, maybe social media posts. That's the thing I was just thinking about, you know, today while I was riding the train uh, home from this the writer's meeting I was at this morning, I was thinking maybe I could get chat GPT to help me with my social media presence but I would still have to actually like do it and I still don't actually care. So that probably wouldn't really help all that much, but it is good for, you know, telling it to do some mundane or rote thing and having it get it done. Mm -hmm. I've heard from other authors. I have a a buddy in the uh, science fiction writers association who we've been talking about AI in the discord for the SFWA for, you know, for months now. And one of the uses that that one of the other members talked about that I thought was really interesting and very helpful usage of it is that he had a book that he had written in third person and he wanted it to be in first person Ooh. instead. And that's like an editing task that can potentially be like monumental. Like you can't mm-hmm. just find and replace. You really have to like go yeah. through and focus on it. And he was able to do like, a thousand words at a time because of the limitations of yeah. the, the engine, but a thousand words at a time, tell it, okay, change the person of this text. And it yeah. outputted him text that he only had to then minimally re-edit afterwards rather than completely line That's by great. line changing Good idea. the person yeah. of the text. So that kind of thing I could see it being really useful for. And other, you know, translations and tone changes for business text you know a lot of executives are probably going to start using things like chat gpt to write their you know out of office emails or whatever to make yes personable right tasks that are maybe you know and this is not a way of putting them down but that are less creative 
and more craft, right? And I think that's where where these AI engines are going to shine for, you know, basically saving us time so that we can do the important writing. Yeah. That doesn't mean people aren't going to try to use these things to make art, and they already are. Part of mm-hmm. the discussion on the SFWA is editors of magazines, especially the ones that pay really well, are getting a lot of people sending them stories that are obviously AI generated. Yeah. That, you know, they're just trying to make a quick buck, right? Yeah. Not that selling short fiction is extremely lucrative, but, (laughs) um, you know, if you come up with this idea that, oh, this thing can just write stories and then I can just send these stories to these magazines Mm -hmm. and they'll pay me, that's, it's not that easy. But if you think it is, then there's a lot of people who think that they can just tell chat GPT to write a story. And then they send that story to one of these magazines and they think, you know, that they're going to get, you know, 150 bucks a story or whatever. And if they can do that in bulk, then they can make a a side hustle. A decent living. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, none of the magazines buy enough stories to really make that. And so far, a lot of the editors talk about like, it's really obvious when it was Mm -hmm. written by an AI, because it's really, it's, they kind of all do the same mistakes and it all sounds really, really homogenous, right? Yeah. But it's, it's going to get better. And that's the thing that uh, they're worried about. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't worry about it as much as an editor. I mean, honestly, partly because my budget's not that big. So nobody's really targeting me for, you know, that much quick <laughs> <Yeah. steam>. but <laughs> especially the magazines that, that do pay the higher pro level rates. Yeah. They're worried about, you know, when these engines get better and better and better at writing stories that seem more and more like they were written by real people and might even actually be good. Mm. You know, how, how do they filter them out? Yeah. And should they, right? Like if they're actually writing stories that are as good as people can write, is that okay? Right. And that, that's a hard question to answer. (laughs) It is. It feels like we're getting philosophical. As a society, we do not have that answer yet. Mm No, no, I certainly don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Like in my heart, I feel like when I'm reading fiction, I would rather be reading fiction from a person. Right. Yes. But I I can't really tell you why. (laughs) If it's good then why should I care? Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of like, it's like a scarcity thing, right? Yeah. Someone had to actually put time and energy and their own creative brain into creating this thing. And that makes it a rare and more beautiful product Yeah. than if it was written by an AI who was just, you know, metaphorical fingers snapped and the story was there. Right. Absolutely. But so then it's more about the provenance, right? It's not about the story itself. And whether yeah. or not the story's good, it's about the provenance of that story. And that's, it's the story of the story that makes the human stories mm-hmm. preferred. But are magazines going to care about that forever? Mm. Right? Yeah. Especially when we think about like mass market um, mm. pseudo journalism. What if we have AIs being the editors reading at the magazines saying what's mm-hmm. good or not? And oh, the God. are <laughs> writing the stories and then the whole publication is just... <laughs> AI all the way uh, down. Oh, well. It's still selling. And then, and maybe that'll be better because then we're not taking advantage of writers anymore because the people who write mm. for those publications right now are way underpaid. True. Yes. That's they something are we still talked about writing. last time. <laughs> so it's taking their jobs away, but they were shitty jobs. 
So I don't know. So is this a good swing? Maybe after all, it's hard to like swing one way or the other here. And I use ChatGPT for like my my day job at the moment quite mm -hmm. a lot. So the interesting thing is when you when you use it every day, you also find yourself getting used to it as a tool a lot more than mm -hmm. just like asking it to write text for you and finish stuff for you. And I actually had a talk with someone last um, week, an interview as well for my day job. And we were talking about this specific thing. And she said that um, the problem is that most people still see ChatGPT as a butler and not as an assistant, which would be better. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. And I think that is a clever way of looking at it. Because what I tend to do um, also with like crafting stories right now, I write a lot of stories related to authorian mythology. So what I'll do, because... It's not, Ethereum mythology is not a clear body of works. There's like so many different elements to it. And there is no real original story. There's just a ton of different versions of it. So what I do on occasion is I'll have like an idea for a character and a thing that I want to do with them. And then I'll ask JGPT, give me um, a night that has to do with this and that. And then it'll just give me that information and I can use it and put it into my story. But I'm not using the exact words that JGPT mm -hmm. uses. I'm just more using it as a brainstorming tool. If that makes yeah. sense. And I think that's a cool way. Or like as a prompt generator, it could also yeah. be very Oh, nice. yeah. Absolutely. One thing I would like to add is we met you. Mm -hmm. I met both of you through through writing communities. And I know that I personally find that very motivating to go and to be with like-minded people, to work in a space where other people are writing. And I know you are one of the leaders for our Shut Up and Write. Mm-hmm branch. And so I know that you find this valuable as well. So I, I'm very grateful for this resource. I'm very grateful that we got to meet each other through this resource. Mm -hmm. And I think our listeners should also look up local chapters or come join us at Creative Questers or wherever. Just, yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add about community? Organizations like like Shut Up and Write are really valuable and, and co-working, especially through and after the pandemic, has become like really clear to me that that's very helpful mm -hmm. for a lot of people. It is about motivation, right? A lot of the writers that we write with in these, these writing groups have trouble getting through anything on their own, right? A mm -hmm. lot of people have trouble with this sort of intrinsic motivation. And, you know, I've, I was just talking to one of the members in our, our Wednesday afternoon session last week, who, you know, at the end of our second hour, of heads down writing, she exclaimed, this is the most work I've gotten done in the last three months. <laughs> Yay. Right. And like, that's great. You know, that this is, this is wonderful that this can, that this can be there for them. And that, mm -hmm. and that's such a valuable tool to get more art into the world. More art is always better. I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. Agreed. And, and so I'm glad that that's there for me personally, it's more of a social thing. Mm -hmm. I would probably write just as much okay. at home on my own. Uh, I just wouldn't have as much fun doing it. I do like being surrounded by other writers and having the community and being, you know, having the the social bits in between where we can talk about how things are going and uh, what we're working on and share our stories. And then it also does serve as a place like I, I end up actually using the writers group time a lot for like reading submissions and doing other writer business things and then 
doing more of the actual writing at home when mm -hmm. I'm on my own without, you know, the cafe music distracting me or whatever. So <laughs> it's still writing adjacent. Yeah. It's still part <laughs> of the, the writing. Well, I feel like we could probably, I know from past history that we could go on talking forever. Yes. We could do like five more of these episodes. There were so many topics that we talked about today and talked about in our last conversation that prompted us to ask you to come on for an interview mm -hmm. that I would love to revisit. We'll just invite CB, CB again. Yeah. You just have to come back. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm so glad that you joined us today. It's been so great talking to you and hearing your writer's journey. Thank you so much. Yes. I'm so happy yeah. that I got to meet you and uh, you inspire me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I came. We're on. glad. I'd be happy to come on again sometime. Excellent. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us on today's Creative Quest. If you have some thoughts you want to add to our musings or just want to say hi, feel free to get in touch with us. You can reach us via Instagram where we are called Creative Questers or simply send us an email at creativequesters at gmail.com. So we quest again.